Lucas on Life. Hello, welcome to Lucas on Life. I'm Jeff Lucas, and of course, this last Sunday, defeat was snatched from the jaws of victory as the undeniably brilliant Lionesses lost out to the amazingly skilled Spanish side in the final of the Women's World Cup. Last time England was in a World Cup final, I was just 10 years old, and now I'm not 10 years old. Helpfully, the British tabloid celebrated the stunning achievements of Serena Wiegmann's team. The recurring word in the headlines on Monday morning was hero, and they are heroes indeed, worthy of celebration and our applause. But there is one high-profile celebrity, a royal one on this occasion, who didn't fare so well in the aftermath of the heartbreaking final – and that was Prince William. He sent a message to the ladies apologising for not attending the final in person. Of course, the critics came out in force, with one reporter from the Guardian newspaper remarking that those who criticised just wanted to take our future king down a peg or two. The question, she said, where was Prince William at the World Cup final, was endlessly examined by news anchors, big mouths, football pundits and politicians. Piers Morgan, never slow to express his opinion, tweeted, with respect, your Royal Highness, you should have got on a plane. The Observer reporter seemed to have some sympathy for the prince, noting that he wasn't alive back in 1966 when we last had World Cup glory. She said, people are extrapolating his behaviour from an event that predated his birth and applying it to a similar event that may never happen and deciding nevertheless that they are absolutely sure what he would do. She continued, it seems, I don't know, a bit bold and speaking as a self-selected representative of the Wokarati, if he had flown to Australia, I would have complained about his carbon footprint. In other words, if he went, he'd be criticised, and if he stayed, he was criticised. All of this got me thinking about our less-than-great British hobby of being endlessly critical, and we Christians aren't immune. Friends in politics tell me that some of the most rude and acerbic critical communications that they receive come from Christians. More about that later. So tonight, let's think about the not-so-noble art of being critical. To be clear, being critical isn't wrong. It shows that we're being willing to think, and it ensures that our churches don't become cults, which is important because I'd look terrible in orange. But some of us make a hobby, a pastime, out of affirming our displeasure as loudly and frequently as possible. So why is that? And how should we treat our leaders? Tonight, it's Lucas on criticism. It created a storm of criticism. Broadcaster and journalist Janet Street Porter made a poignant observation about the society we're becoming and suggested that we're using technology like a rabble of loud bullies ever eager to criticise. Writing in The Independent, she lamented that If Jesus had been tortured and crucified today, photographs would be online within seconds along with jokes and funny videos. Social media, she said, enables us to fight social injustice and shine light on acts of terror, but it has also turned us into yobs 
people who rarely think of the consequences before pressing the send button. I think her comments are very pertinent as we're thinking about a culture of criticism. And her comment came after she had crossed verbal swords on the BBC's topical programme, Question Time. Ms Street Porter quickly came under smartphone fire, receiving a volley of hundreds of abusive texts, insulting her looks, tagging her as stupid, and suggesting that she deserved to die from cancer. She went on to ask a pertinent question, which surely demands our attention. Modern technology has turned us into a shouty society, she said. Are we losing our ability to politely disagree? The evidence is in. She's right. With one in three teachers saying that they've been bruised by text and internet bullying from students and parents, we're in danger of becoming a critical culture where the person who yells poisonous vitriol the loudest wins. But when dialogue is replaced by diatribe, we all lose. Truth isn't found when opponents just parry with sound bites. We must journey in rugged but respectful debate if we're to arrive at helpful conclusions. But this virus of word pummeling is not just infecting our wider culture, but it contaminates the church too. Those of us who profess to follow Jesus need to get our own houses in order. Remember the Brexit referendum in the UK? There were some Christians who traded rude, derisory comments on Facebook, perhaps thinking that we can suspend our commitment to measured speech and kindness when the conversation centres around politics. Some Christian leaders posted statements that were loaded with generalities and simplistic solutions, implying that anyone who didn't share their political viewpoint was idiotic, selfish, fascist, communist, or simply just out of step with God. Obviously, some policies don't reflect what God wants, but kingdom justice doesn't come when there's more heat than light. When we arrogantly insist that we have carte blanche divine endorsement for our views as we criticize the views of others, rather than robustly arguing our case, we take the easy way out and just duck behind God, or so we think. A few days after that referendum, the Archbishop of Canterbury, Justin Welby, gave a speech that included the sad admission that some of the worst hate mail he receives comes from Christians. He said, The reality is that we do not, as faith groups in our society, always exhibit that secure tolerance to each other that enables us to speak powerfully of secure tolerance to the world around us. Christians are as bad as anyone at this. In fact, if I dare to be competitive, I think we're worse. The policy of ranting believers is not reserved to the UK. Politicians on Capitol Hill in America have long remarked that evangelical Christians are among the rudest of their constituents, often using capital letters and exclamation marks without restraint in their emails and threatening the fires of hell if their political representative doesn't vote as they demand. Genuine passion can have an unfortunate side effect. We tend to shout. But concerns expressed at high volume or with a harsh tone don't only wound those on the receiving end, but they erode our credibility. It's difficult for a politician to believe that constituents are authentically loving and caring if they act like blustering bigots hollering insults. 
And you don't have to be a vitriolic internet troll to become a verbal bully. Those of us who are church leaders can adopt a troll-like posture when we demonize someone in the congregation because they bother us with awkward questions. When we tag a questioner as difficult, it's not long before they graduate to being divisive. And although we don't actually get around to burning the witch, we certainly shred their reputations with a few words of pious dismissal. Regrettably, I've done this as a leader and its cowardly behavior. At the end of his authentic and humble speech, Archbishop Welby offered a challenge for us all. Can we model confidentiality, transparency, and genuine respect for one another? As we're thinking about criticism and the way we do it, I really hope that we can. Over the years, and because of the miles that I've traveled, I've come into contact with lots of vicars, priests, elders, and pastors. I've met selfless, hard-working souls who pour out their lives for their churches and communities, and I've met lazy ministers who would make a sloth look productive. I've bumped into breathtakingly gifted entrepreneurs who would have made millions if they hadn't chosen their vocation, and others who are in the ministry mainly because they can't do anything else too well and don't do ministry that well either. In talking about criticism, if that seems rather critical, forgive me, but it is an honest observation. I've met servant-hearted types whose ideal night out would be to gird up their loins with a towel, grab a bowl and head for a local foot washing, and I bumped into power-hungry bullies who should have no place in the pulpit. Now I know, I'm biased because I'm a minister, and given the choice between engaging with pleasant, encouraging, smiling souls and those carping critics who make piranhas look like tame goldfish, I'd obviously choose the former. But it's worth thinking about why we should be nice to the women and men who lead us in our churches, and for one simple reason. Encouragement takes thought and strategy, and shouldn't just happen because it just happens. Years ago, Ian Dury, together with his blockhead friends, sang about reasons to be cheerful. So let's think about reasons to be nice to our leaders. First of all, they frequently take the blame for God. It's true. In our thinking, Christian leaders represent God, who is currently invisible and at times seems unavailable, especially when things go horribly wrong in life. When people get angry with God, unfortunately, there's no customer support line to call, so they frequently take out their frustration on the person they most associate with God, which might be their vicar, pastor, leader, or priest. Getting slapped on behalf of the Almighty is not a happy experience. If we're mad with God, we should include a rant in our prayers, because he can cope being God. But our local leaders, they're not quite as resilient. If we think that they're thick-skinned and can take it on the chin, we're probably wrong. The reason that they got into that vocation is often because they are sensitive souls who genuinely care. And being the vicar, when they get mad with God because God's people got mad with them, they have no one to slap. Nobody human, anyway. Also, our leaders are required to say some things that they'd prefer not to say. The Bible does contain some awkward truths, 
And if your pastor or minister is going to be faithful in preaching it, they'll have to deal with some tricky passages on sensitive subjects like divorce, war, adultery, sexuality, and brace yourself for the subject which tends to light the blue touch paper, money. When speaking on those subjects, they're unlikely to please all of the people all of the time, which means that they will take some heat. Cool them down with some kindness, because when they tackle those controversial issues, they're demonstrating bravery, not bullishness. If they make a statement that we disagree with, let's let it get under our skin, circle our brains, fuel our prayers, and even challenge our hearts before we send that vociferous email. Come to think of it, why not cancel that vociferous email? Leaders are often the target for gossip. In some churches, of course, Christians don't gossip, they share. Under that guise of sharing, please pray for the pastor, he or she is really struggling right now, we can give the impression that the pastor is struggling with faith and is now a fully paid-up member of the Humanist Society, struggling with temptation and has opened their own private harem, or is struggling with anger towards his congregation and now is possibly a serial killer whose crime pattern is striking during the after-church cup of tea while wearing clerical attire. Gossip destroys people. Let's not pass it on. Leaders don't have a hotline to God. Some think that their leaders have a VIP pass to the courts of heaven and that they begin each day with a happy little chat with God. They don't. They struggle with doubt, unanswered prayer, and when going through wilderness time. And when going through wilderness times in their faith, often have to appear more certain than they are, not because they're faking it, but because it's inappropriate for them to dump their own private struggles on their congregation every Sunday. If you sometimes feel that your prayer life is a struggle, know that they frequently feel the same. These days, I'm more concerned about those who insist that God and they have interference-free conversations than I am about the souls who fear that their connection is patchy at best. Finally, let's be nice to our leaders. Let's show kindness because they usually don't have a cunning plan for world domination. All right, as I said earlier, there are some wolves out there masquerading as shepherds, and there are power-hungry, authoritarian, clerical control freaks who would be better at leading a fascist regime than a local congregation. Spiritual abuse does happen. It's very serious indeed. Some leaders do have a well-proven weapon that efficiently silences anybody with a brain cell who asks awkward questions. As I mentioned earlier, they just tag these people as being divisive. It's an excellent device for manipulation and control. But as we're thinking about criticism and the way we criticize, let's be aware that the vast majority of leaders are ordinary people. God only uses ordinary folk because nothing else is available. And they are simply doing their best to respond to a vocational call to help people discover Jesus and grow closer to him. So let's go ahead, make their day, and help them out by being nice. As our theme tonight has been criticism, let me share a time when I was on the receiving end. The service had gone very well, and I felt that welcome feeling of grateful weariness, the warm glow that comes when you sense, as a leader, that perhaps, just perhaps, you've helped people to walk into another day with a few more handfuls of hope. I strolled to the back of the church building to my book table, ready to pack things away. 
It was then that I saw it. The note was folded exactly in half and stood crisp and upright on the book table, militarily demanding attention. My name was scrawled in an angry address across the front of it. Something told me that this was not an epistle of warm appreciation. I was right. A familiar dread turned my stomach to lead as I reluctantly unfolded the note, its creases razor sharp. The words of criticism within were sharper still. I had obviously angered somebody in the congregation who were certainly not used to the approach that I take to preaching. I love humour, but not all Christians share my desire to smile, and neither do they have to. It's just a shame that some of them become the joyless police, eager to arrest anyone who might possibly be having just a tiny bit more fun than they are, which isn't hard. Personally, I'm committed to the idea that fun is not something that should be reserved for after death for Christians and kept a million miles from biblical preaching. The writers of the critical note vehemently disagreed. Their scribble was like a lurid scar on paper. It screamed their indignant protest. Perhaps you'd like me to read the note. Okay. It said, Sir, we would see Jesus not your comedy act and nonsensical gibberish. You can't win souls to Jesus with all that rubbish. You're not a preacher, you're a comedian. You have missed your calling. The terminal diagnosis concerning me was unsigned. This person or persons who felt constrained to announce my utter worthlessness in their little note of criticism had not chosen to reveal their identity. So, I folded the note back in half, my heart really heavy. I do know what I'm called to do, and I've been around long enough to know that not everyone's going to like it. And the privilege of leadership carries with it the unwelcome moments when we will feel the bitter sting of criticism. But the wildly scrawled note had the effect of a missile on my own sense of hope, blowing any joy that I had to smithereens. I just stood there, and wondered about what kind of person could be so hateful in Jesus' name. And suddenly I wanted to not be a Christian leader anymore. In fact, for a second or two, I even wished that I wasn't a Christian, seeing as that these so-called friends of God were such accomplished verbal assassins. Fortunately, my hankering for atheism only lasted a few seconds before logic rebooted in my brain. It's never enjoyable to be criticised, particularly when it comes wrapped in the cowardly garb of an anonymous letter, an envelope stuffed with verbal barbed wire. These days, if a letter comes unsigned, I try not to give it undeserved dignity. I just don't read it. If the person who wrote it does not have the moral backbone to sign it, then why should I trouble myself reading the fruit of their spineless lack of conviction? But hold on. Are there times when we leaders are criticised and we too quickly rush to conclude that our critics are just fools? Write off the critic too quickly and we could be ignoring an unwelcome gift of God to you. Let's face it, none of us enjoy criticism and there are many times when it is unjust, hurtful and a slap in the face for the already weary. Some leaders react as they do to criticism because they're just punch drunk so shattered from the years of so-called friendly fire that they just can't take it anymore. But just as pain is unwelcome, it's actually the gift of God to us if we placed our hand on a hot stove, 
So criticism may be the signaler that we hate to see, but it might just save our lives. I still try to encourage leaders to ignore unsigned letters, as long as they've not created a culture in their churches where people are too scared to identify themselves with even the most constructive criticism. But whoever we are, leader or not, let's be careful about labelling our next critic a fool too quickly. He or she, as a critic, might turn out to be the most faithful friend that we have. See you next week. Lucas on Life. 